Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. And I'm your host, Brad Jevons, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. We are proudly brought to you in association with SA Partners, a world-leading business transformation consultancy. SA Partners are a truly purposeful company focused on helping organisations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others and the planet. Welcome to episode 110 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. It is such a pleasure to have Mr. Jim Benson on the show with us today. Jim is an expert in effectiveness for individuals, teams and organisations. Jim is a Shingo Research Prize winner for his book with co-author Tony Di Maria, Personal Kanban. Today, we were going to discuss his new book, The Collaboration Equation. Let's get into the episode. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. It is great to be here. I appreciate it. Jim, what's your backstory? Like, What brought you down this path to get involved in really honing in on effectiveness for individuals, teams, and organizations? That's, it's a long one. <laughs> uh, yeah, no one, I, no one goes to university to study this. Uh, generally, you have to be punched in the face many, many times uh, before you think, wow, you know, everyone gets punched in the face. Uh, so uh, what I tell people is uh, I got started as a angry punk rocker in the late 70s and early 80s in the middle of Nebraska in the States. And uh, that's very agrarian. We were the only punk rockers for hundreds of miles. <laughs> and we had to learn how to do all sorts of crazy things, how to play instruments, how to uh, um, produce albums, how to ship those albums. So we had to learn supply chains, advertising, how to get people in other countries to listen to our stuff when there was no internet. Uh, and so... After that, I became a civil engineer uh, and urban planner. I built freeways and subways, uh, light rail systems around the world. And those were huge billion dollar projects that we had large distributed teams building again before there was an internet. Uh, so then when the internet came around, I was like, well, that's interesting. I wish that had been around before. <laughs> uh, now I'm not so sure, but, but we, that we won't go there. Um, and started a software company uh, originally uh, with a guy named William Rowden, and we built software to help government be more collaborative and better stewards of their data. And then during that time, happened to accidentally be one of the you know group of people that invented Kanban, and then personal Kanban, and then at that point uh, went off and started this company. And I've always been interested in human beings coming together and working together to do something awesome. And it's always frustrated me that people come together, set up really stupid systems to stop them from getting their work done and then proceed to beat the crap out of each other because they're not getting their work done because they built that system themselves to stop them from getting their own work done. <laughs> Too true. That's me in a yeah, nutshell. That's, a, that's an amazing background. So you're like, I and I was in rock bands too early on in my life, i got to admit. But it does teach you that before the internet. It does teach you that entrepreneurialism, doesn't it? That, yeah, and, and mm -hmm. the road of hard knocks. And then engineering and IT. Like I'm guessing in IT you touched on all those developments coming through at that time. But I love how yeah. you've honed 
in on that, you know, building the individual and the capability throughout? Like, what was it that you saw in your career where you felt like, you know, this is not working, this is not actually getting the outcomes that we expected or wanted? Yeah. Every time I saw a project fall apart, it was because people didn't have the information or the ability to act that they needed in order to be a true professional. Um, sometimes it was because of them. So, you know, when in punk rock, it might be because they happened to be, I don't know, a heroin addict, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, uh, that would get in the way, but usually that doesn't happen in the office. <laughs> and what does, what is more likely to happen in the office is we've set up some sort of system that stopped people from getting and acting on information at the time when it should be acted on. Yeah. So that whole communication piece is so critical that people have the information and the knowledge and they're able to act when they need to act. And then you, you've you've got this new book, which is amazing, coming out called The, the Collaboration Equation, which is due out mm-hmm. late August, September, which will be pretty well on this Yeah, show. it should be sometime in August is what I'm thinking now. Yeah, great, Jim. You know, well, how did it lead into that? You know, this is your most recent book. Like, what led you to develop it and, you know, produce it for release this year? So the tagline for modus cooperandi uh, was performance through collaboration. And so even back when Dave Anderson and I first started the company with Corey Lattice years ago, um, and even before that, when we had my, I had my software company, it was software aimed at collaboration. It has always been important to me that the human beings, like I said, come together and make the best of their individual talents in that group setting. And when you do, it's a beautiful, fun thing. Work doesn't feel like work. Product is super quali- super high quality. And so I had gathered up a set of anecdotes and stories from my career and said, okay, well, now I'm going to write this book about collaboration. And I wrote almost all of it on a vacation in Hawaii. And then I flew back to the States to do uh, what was supposed to be just a one-off visit to a company called Turner Construction in New York City. And when I got there, almost immediately, I was like, oh no, I can't finish the book because these people have a lot to teach me. You know, So they hired me to teach them stuff, but I knew it was going to be reciprocal. And so then I waited three years, worked with them for three years. And then over the course of COVID for the other two years, wrote this book. And this book has a lot of stories about Turner in it, but in a nutshell, it's that in both lean and agile, we tell people, you know, you need to be in, you need to be a culture of continuous improvement, but we don't do anything to develop the culture. We say work in iteration's or do an A3 or something, you know, foolish things that don't have a context yet because you haven't created a culture for it. So this book is all like, if we're going to build what we call the right environment, which is a term that came from Turner, the right environment is the professionals having the information that they need and the um, ability to act that they need in order to do a professional job. And when I started my engineering career or was in my engineering career, I worked for a company called David Evans and associates. Our tagline was we hire outstanding professionals and give them the tools to do an outstanding job. So it's almost the exact same thing. 
And that is what this book is about. It has literally been 35 years in the making. Yeah, that's neat. Particularly with your background in an industry that, you know, in many cases, it needs some help, you know, that construction and building industry. It's Mm -hmm. uh, an area that you got really great performance and you got areas where there's challenges and people are struggling. Many. You have a lot of politics. A lot of politics. Yeah. Jim, with... With the key elements of the book, so you've mentioned, and I totally agree with you, you know, that that right environment, that right culture, and then you can draw on the right tools that you need to actually take it to another level. But leading Mm -hmm. with the tools can be a fool's game because if the culture's not there, it's not going to work. So the two key elements you mentioned- And you begin to think that the tools are process. Yeah. You think that the tools are culture. So you're like, I'm agile because I do two-week iterations. No, you do two-week iterations because you do two-week iterations. Yeah, yeah, too true. <laughs> so, Jim, what would you say? You, you mentioned information and the ability to act. Are those the two key elements or are there any other elements that you say are critical to creating that culture and that environment where people can then really mm. thrive with these systems and tools? Yeah, thrive is an excellent word. Uh, it is an excellent word. In fact, it's the name of our blog on the personal Kanban site. <laughs> um, so so we, what we want is for professionals to thrive. We want them to have a clear understanding of what, how they can help at any given point in time. So the kind of the key elements for us are that is, is one, have you gotten together and in a systemic way discussed what that culture is that you want to have? or even, dare I say it, that you require. So you and your team get together and you say, what is the right environment that we need in order to actually act as a team? Uh, The second thing that you need is to understand how your work actually flows and to take a good critical look at your team and ask your team, are we a team or are we a silo? 90% of the agile teams that I see are silos. They have someone protecting the team. The moment you protect your team, you are a silo. You are no longer part of the company. You are now an agency that works through a product owner with the rest of the company. And that creates dependencies, that creates uh, all sorts of technical debt because you're not actually a collaboratively part of your company anymore. You're collaborative part of your team collaboratively part of your team, but you're not, you're not part of the company. And that's terrible. <laughs> I won't mince words. That's really bad. So we want then to be able to identify what the, what the atmosphere is that we want for our team, how we relate to other teams and make sure that the work that we're getting isn't, and here we always have dependencies. Because if you find that, then you'll find, well, our team is actually a really dumb idea. (laughs) The dependencies are the work. The work has a certain demand and your team isn't devised in a way to do your work. That's, that's That's what a dependency ends up being. So then the third thing is when you've done those two things, can you visualize that? Can you make not just a Kanban, but make a room full of visualizations virtual or otherwise called an OBEA that have all of the information that your team needs in order to get their work done. 
what experiments are in flight, what work is in flight, what stuff are you teaming on with other teams, what learning has just happened, what learning is coming up. You know, all of the things that your team really needs to see that you're constantly hiding in Slack, you you need to see it. Yeah. <laughs> One of the exercises we run with teams is we get together and we we just basically say, we do an affinity mapping exercise and we ask everybody, put everything on the, put every avenue of data storage, information storage, or where information goes to die on this wall. And teams will come up with 30 or 40 different tools that they're using at the same time to store information. And then they're like mad at their stakeholders, but their stakeholders don't know how to communicate with them. <laughs> yeah. And that's only like, getting that's you, only you, getting worse nowadays, isn't it? Like with the amount of communication it's, it's, channels. It's, it's awesomely horrible. It is the it, it is like a total film noir of management every time you go in and work with a company. And it's like these are all the ways that we that we, you know, stab ourselves in the gut and watch ourselves bleed bleed all over the ground. Um, so we want to learn about those things so that we can get an, uh, an intentional culture get an intentional workflow or a set of workflows, get an intentional relationship with where complexity lies in our work. And then, then we can continuously improve because we're better managing our information. And the quote that this comes back to is uh, one of my favorite quotes in the history of everything. And it appears in the book several times is when I was working at Turner, we had Nobea set up for their procurement process. And there was a gentleman there named Kevin Chase, who is a young guy who was a procurement agent. And what happens is if you have a $1 billion building, he's the guy that has to go spend the billion dollars. And he has maybe two months to spend a billion dollars. And that's everything from like structural steel to toilet paper holders. Uh, He has to buy it all. And as you can imagine, that's really complicated and it's really easy to make people mad at you. So we had all of the HR people from Turner smashed into this little room where he had all of his visualizations. And they said to him, Kevin, you know, does this, you know, help you go home earlier? Does this impact your work-life balance? And Kevin kind of laughed at them and said, I work in construction. Nothing's going to change my work-life balance. He said, but what does happen is whenever something happens, you know, all of these different packages, there's like 80 different bid packages that are flowing across this giant Kanban. He says, when one of these is in peril, there are different stickers that I put on it. If it needs help from my boss, my boss's boss, my boss's boss's boss, my boss's 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 boss. So all the way up the chain, it was instant visual escalation. And Kevin's sentence was, and that helps me act with confidence. Yeah. Yeah. And I almost cried. In fact, I'm almost crying. And (laughs) the reason that's so moving to me is that it really clearly pointed out that most people do not act with confidence. Yeah. Well, you're, you're spending half your day just trying to think, where am I at with that? Where is that going? What am I going to get in trouble for next? If I do this, who's going to yell at me? Just that complexity of the communication. I had a friend once say to me, he said, Brad, culture change happens through a million conversations. And you know, communication is such at the heart of human interaction, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. there's communication and there's all of what we see people do. You know, they're the two levers in a massive way. But then mm-hmm. our our 
communication systems in a company is just, they're just completely out of control. And so you're saying, Jim, there's two things. There's two things I can really hear there, what you did for that chat. One is you're visualizing the process and where communication and things are at with him using Kanban and the, the post-it notes that he can flow around to keep have visualization of where things are at. But then also this piece you're talking about around trying to streamline and simplify, or is, is simplify the right word, but you're trying to improve the communication flows in a company, mm-hmm. especially in relation to interdependencies. What, what, is that correct? Or am I off track a bit with that? Yeah, no, that's it. So it's, it is all about the relationships. So without that board, um, uh, if he were to go, you know, let's just say he goes to, there were, there were two guys named Charlie who were, who ran the whole New York office. And then the one was the GM that was overseeing the work that Kevin was working on. Uh, so they were two steps up, three steps up the ladder from him, but it was almost a billion dollar project. So they were interested (laughs) in what was going on. So what would happen before was weekly, Kevin would have to have a status meeting with them. And he would basically go with all of these decisions that had been made, things that were going right, things that weren't going right. And he would basically go in and just have to apologize for everything that wasn't going perfectly. And the moment that the board and and then their relationship was based on that. Here comes Kevin. He's going to apologize now. (laughs) Uh, But the moment that the board went up, they could see everything that was going right. And then the very few things that weren't. And all of a sudden, those had context. And that it wasn't communicating the stuff that, quote unquote, needed to be communicated. It was communicating all of the stuff that didn't need to be communicated. Yeah, that's the nice. which made all the difference in the world. So it completely changed those relationships. So it's it's all about those relationships. Yeah. So Jim, I can really hear you talking about those pillars that I know, you know, mainly from an agile point of view is that transparency, inspection, adaption. So you're using that mm-hmm. concept built on getting that clear flows of where things are at that everyone can look at it within a few seconds and see the few challenges mm-hmm. and hone in and deal on those few challenges without thinking that everything's going to going to pot like they can see what's working yeah that's powerful yeah. jim what yeah. with, so um, in yeah. I'll let you go, go, jim. go yeah okay so the uh in behavioral economics there's something called the availability heuristic and basically it means that you remember the things that happened most recently to you, usually those things are negative, and usually those things are in some way emotionally jarring. So if all you hear is negative stuff, that's how you not only read that person, but you start to read like how the company is. Uh, It's really important to be able to seamlessly and quickly show success, because that really is most of our work. We actually don't screw up mostly everything. Mm. I'm, I'm guessing too, Jim, with this concept we're talking about, where you're creating the obeyer and creating the visualization in the workplace, we really need that leading from the front with it, where meetings are the leaders going to where the employee, the team member is, rather than the team member going to where the leader is, because otherwise you're gonna, mm-hmm. you're not gonna have the obeyer there to be able to see what's going well and where the few challenges mm-hmm. are. Is that correct? 
Yeah. And, and what I would say is that once you do that, you get what we really wanted out of a flat organization. So flat organizations are just patently idiotic, just from a legal perspective. You know, there are certain people in the organization that need to have the responsibility to deal with certain legal matters that are just requirements of government and, and, and owning a company. And uh, there are also just, it's helpful to have escalation paths so that certain things can get solved. What's not helpful is when decision-making authority or agency is sequestered in a few individuals. So what this allowed was the management, whom we're calling leadership, but, but the management to come to the OBEA, experience the work that was being done and allow Kevin to be the leader for all of the things that they didn't need to be a leader for. And now all of a sudden, those managers who previously were like, oh my God, I got to tell everybody to do everything. They're like, oh my God, I don't. <laughs> yeah, and got then this. they can do all the other things that they could have been doing along the way that they were neglecting because they were overworked because the system wasn't allowing other people to uh, to exercise their agency. Jim, that's such a simple behavior change, isn't it? Like help every employee or every team create the visualization transparency in their workplace and then shift your meetings from rather than them coming to your office for meetings or up to mm -hmm. the executive. Executive, go to their work area around their transparency obeyer and mm -hmm. see and have, have your meeting there and then go back up. You're going to see... Yeah. You're going to see what's working and all the great stuff they're doing, which gives you that feeling of confidence. You're going to see the few problems and you can, you know, learn from that and support where you need to. And mm -hmm. like you said, you get that greater trust and that greater cultural gain. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it is, uh, it's certainly, when you say it's easy, I would say it's easy to say. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's, it's easy in concept. <laughs> it's, it's very easy in concept. It's, it's, it's quite some heavy lifting uh, in, in reality, especially when you have organizations that have, you know, the people in them have MBAs or what have you, and they've been taught that other things are right. And there are a lot of things that once you start doing this, you find that those things are not right. Mm -hmm. You're going to wipe you know? out that permafrost or that mud that people talk about where you get this frozen middle in a business where communication just becomes fractured or dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this approach you're talking about is going to put a fair crack in that ice that can happen through the middle, middle of the business. If you do this practice. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and again, I was an urban planner, so I think in planning terms. Um, and most plans that people devise are ridiculous. And they are made to oversimplify uh, the activities necessary to achieve a goal. And then they're pushed up the, lead, the, the management chain. Uh, in a way that then makes people commit to doing ridiculous things in a ridiculous amount of time for a ridiculously small amount of money. And then they're held accountable for those, uh, those, those, those promises. And so then we see pushback for that and things like no estimates and stuff, which is like, you know, the pendulum swing 
fully and equally and correctly in the opposite direction. But in the middle somewhere, there is an ability using visualizations like this to at the beginning of a project say, this is where our complexity lies. This is where our standard work lies. We're gonna set up this type of workflow for our standard work. And when we're gonna honestly, accurately and openly deal with these complexities, so that we're the you know if if it's super risky, then the CEO had better be in that obeya every week, watching those decisions get made. Yeah, and if it's not, then they shouldn't. Yeah, that's neat. And that it's the CEO going to that work area and seeing. Navigating change and improvement within an organization can be really difficult. You know, there's many forces working against you and many approaches that will work or not work. Uh, we've formed the Enterprise Excellence Community in Australian region in our time zone to bring together people who are involved in change and creating cultures of continuous improvement and innovation so we can learn from our world's experts but then also gain help from each other in small breakout rooms to help overcome challenges and keep these changes that will ultimately help us create a better future going but we'll hit roadblocks and depending on our approaches can help or hinder if you're interested in joining the community we're taking intake soon please reach out via the website enterprise excellence podcast or enterpriseexcellenceacademy.com or reach out via linkedin thanks let's get back into the episode Hey, Jim, we were talking on the whole piece of creating this obeyer and the visualization and leadership going to that place of, you know, going down the organization to meet and understand so they can see the great stuff that's going on with the few Mm -hmm. problems and create that culture of really, I guess it's creating leaders who serve, but also who aren't freaked out that thinking everything's a problem. One question Mm -hmm. I had for you, mate, is that you look at all these communication channels we've got in today's world. We spoke about it last episode, you know, Slack, mm-hmm. Teams, email, text, all this written word, which I know myself, the written word can be very dangerous because you lose <laughs> a lot of context versus what you're talking about. A lot of these discussions are done face to face where you can see the person's expressions. You can hear their language. You You've got a lot more mm-hmm. context to talk from. Is this part of the approach that you've been working on with this collaboration equation book you've written? Uh, it is, yes. Uh, so there are Obeya tools that are quite nice now that can work online. And uh, a lot of my clients currently uh, that at the beginning of COVID were all co-located now can never be co-located again either because their people just said, oh my God, like I'm out of the office and then they moved to another another place entirely. Or in the case of our German client, they just hired people all over the world almost immediately. They doubled in size and very few of those people are in Germany. They're all over the place. So having the ability to see the activities of the team in one location and in a way where it's not text, So it's not one location being a folder in Google Docs, Um, but it's a bunch of images that we can process as objects in relation to other objects. 
Human beings process that information much more quickly. They spot patterns quickly and they see avenues or triggers for action. Uh, so any visualization that you have should show you state. So what's going on, who's doing it, what's, you know, what's in peril, what's not. Um, it should show you triggers. So this thing is in this state, therefore I should do this or someone else should do that. They should show direction, which is the plans that you have made to, you know, when what's coming in the future. It should show you your narrative, which is how those plans are changing when they meet reality. It should show your culture, which is, you know, like we value continuous improvement. We value quality. Part of our cultural um, promise to each other uh, when we set up our right environment was that we would, we would always be doing at least two technical debt tickets every, every whatever we're doing, every sprint, every iteration, every week, whatever. Um, and so we can see that we are, we are adhering to that process. And identity, uh, which is, um, you know, who are we as a team and are we being true to ourselves? You know, so if we are co-located, do we go out to eat? If we're not, do we do other things to maintain our team? Um, every visualization needs to do that in its own way. Some, some are going to be stronger in, in, in ones than others. Um, but it's why a Kanban is never enough. Yeah. And that's a big problem when you're using something like Jira or et cetera, is that it's only one way to see your work and it could be a very misleading way for you to visualize, to yeah. visualize your work. I've never seen any team, regardless of industry, not need a Kanban, <laughs> but it's, you know, it, it's like, it's like the fence post and then you need to build out the fence. Yeah. Cause the Kanban, the Kanban in no way is going to define team culture and the, the whole, I guess what's it called? You know, like uh like that cultural definition, you know, that a team mm -hmm. will have. You can't get that out of a Kanban. And then you can't get any visualization on any critical measures or performance out of a Kanban. It's but a lot of the focus becomes a Kanban only, doesn't it? Often and it, in it does. Terms. Yeah, it does. And and I'm partially responsible for that, so I apologize. <laughs> Um, but I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, when Dave and Corey and I first started writing about this and we got in trouble for it from the scrum community, because we were saying things like two week iterations or sprints or whatever, aren't necessary. It, it ran up against the dogma of, of the industry and people got upset because it was a big change and they had already gone through a big change to get to the two week iterations. And people were like, what? <laughs> you can't be serious. You know, they went all like John McEnroe on us. And the thing is, is we have to be in the same, we have to, we have to, we have to learn from that and have the same and have the humility to say, all right, the Kanban is an incredibly powerful visualization. And if you don't have one, you're probably not going to see your work. Yeah. And that, in that way, it does help with culture, but that just like you said, um, there's all sorts, you know, right now behind you, there's all sorts of charts and graphs. Those aren't going to be shown on, on the Kanban, but they'd have to be seen somewhere. Yeah. And the tools online hide those in other screens and they don't make those screens their own visual control. Yeah. 
I've really loved, Jim, the advent of Miro and Mural and things like this, you know, like I know it simplifies mm-hmm. the Kanban, but boy, it amplifies the capability to have that one view across. Are there any other sort of systems or I know we're talking tools here, but people do love yep. this. Are there any other systems or tools <laughs> that you find really create that visualization cool. in one place? So I'll go back to, I'll go back to, um, to Miro uh, or Mural uh, and um, say that this is what, both of those tools did for us is that we set up that quote unquote simple Kanban and there it is and tickets are flowing around on it and that's nice. But the first, the thing that we noticed was almost immediately we started sticking other things to the Kanban. You know, we put smileys here, we put, you know, wall cats there, you know, we put memes here. Uh, We put notes to each other on top of the ticket, not like, Jira or Trello, where they're hidden inside the ticket. Unbelievably important. The level of our understanding of the work shot through the roof. And it was simply because we were finally able to start acting like we acted normally when we were using post-it notes on the wall. Yeah. The problem with Miro and Mural is that it's very easy to create just a giant mess. Yeah. It, it, it devolves very, very quickly. So another tool that we've taken to using is a French tool called Iobea. And um, it is quite an organized, pretty tool. Uh, and it gives you enough flexibility like uh, Miro and Mural to still stick things on other things. And one of the things that I really love about it is if I have like a ticket on a Kanban and I put another note on top of it and i move the kanban ticket the note moves with it oh nice that's cool it's the simplest dumbest most awesome feature in the history of features yeah and jim does it allow you to put up like team charters or you know which dog are we today this cultural aspect that brings that to life too every anything you want so it's set up to be like an obey a room so you set up your room and then in that room you set up walls so the walls are thematic. So our walls are operations, sales, um, content creation, uh, legal, et cetera. And then in each one of those walls, we have different, different visualizations. So it's, it is just like a room. So in a construction trailer for Turner, we would have had like the wall for procurement, the wall for safety, the wall for current operations, the wall for you know, operations that are coming up. And then each of those would have had different visualizations on them. And uh, so it works exactly the same way, except it's, it's virtual. That sounds awesome, Jim. Thanks for that. Jim, what, what do you find, mate, through writing this book, The Collaboration Equation, and the work you do with companies, where you get a company that just does not you know, embrace this approach or embrace improving here? What stops them? What do you find really stops this coming to life and working? Well, yeah, I have like 12 answers to that. <laughs> so I'm going to cherry pick a few of them. And then if people say, you didn't mention, it's, I'm going to say, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so first and foremost, uh, human beings are wired to resist change. All of us. And it can be a very small change, a very large change. And if we weren't wired that way, we would never have any stability. 
Okay. So we're constantly in this internal tension about, is this thing that this person is bringing to me going to be changed is going to help or is it going to hurt? Or at the very least, is it just going to muck up my, my stability? Is it just going to interrupt me? And so when you have organizational change, that's changing all the everythings. <laughs> Yeah. You know, so it's like, you know, if you showed up one day and said, you know, hey, I've decided that I'm going to change your race, your gender, the country you live in, your tolerance to heat and whether or not you like chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. and you'd be like, why? And it's like, because I read this book that said that this is a much preferable way of living. <laughs> um, and you'd be like, well, the. And, you know, you'd be thinking, like, I have to buy clothes. <laughs> you know, how am I going to dress tomorrow? Yeah. So. Um, so that's first and foremost, the thing is, it's just like the amount of internal processing that any individual has to do when confronted with large scale change is massive. And we never respect that. Never at all. Okay. So that, that's thing A. <laughs> and then thing B is we very rarely give people migration paths to change. And Agile is super famous for this. It's just like, you know, I'm going to come in on Monday. We're going to have a two-day class. And then after that, you're going to be all scrum all the time. And people are like, the what? The why? And you're like, shut up and take the class. <laughs> and they're like, already failed from the beginning. <laughs> uh, so what's beautiful about entering it from the cultural side is that you get together with the team and you say, hey, what do you need as individuals, as a team, making this particular product with your particular clients, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, we work with tons of different advertisers and all of them work with in different verticals and in different verticals, the client, the clientele are ranging from outrageous jerks to really wonderful people. And, you know, it just kind of goes along that, that continuum. Those companies could never hope to have the same process. And so every team you run into is going to have, you know, something that's unique. So being able to start with who are you and what do you need? And then saying, okay, you need these things. Here are the things that you really want right away. How do we build, you know, Strangely enough, treat it like a project. How do you build a roadmap for that change that allows them not only to change at a comfortable pace, but to build their chops at change at all? Yeah, that's neat. That that yeah. so that's both of them, I guess. That's the that's, that's the things that suck, how we're responsible for them, and how we can change them. I, I love it, Jim, in a way <laughs> that it's like you know one of the classic things is voice a customer. And like you're saying, right, in any change, the, the customer is the person who's going to have to change or the people. And so you're just getting mm -hmm. in there, getting their voice right to start with and then using that voice to help them help them evolve and improve in, the, in a direction that they need to go, which, of course, with human nature is going to involve transparency, some level of inspection and an adaption approach that mm -hmm. then, and mm -hmm. of course, like you're saying, a big part of it is going to be around the culture. Because everyone, one of the first mm -hmm. things they'll start to voice is anything that's a cultural gripe that's causing them grief in their day-to-day. -day. Yeah, absolutely. That's really smart. Mate, in your area of expertise with the new book coming out, Jim, 
what would be your a two-minute tip you'd give to someone? If you're in an elevator with someone, very slow elevator, two minutes to give them a tip on <laughs> how to go about first steps in, in the space we're talking about, what would you say to them? Uh, I would... I, I would warn people, um, you think that you've heard something good and you're going to go bring it to somebody else and they're going to welcome you. That is going to work out like Iraq every time. <laughs> so we, the thing that the U.S. said at the time was they're going to welcome us as liberators and everything is going to be fine. Well, No. You are a change agent and you are bringing change to people and they are going to do two things. They're going to resist the change and they're going to resist the change agent. So the only thing that you can do to be successful in that role is to gain some sort of understanding as to the desire of the people that you're dealing with to change the payoff of the changes that you're bringing and the least cost path for you to divest yourself of being a change agent. So you want them to own the change as quickly as possible, which means that you have to find the thing that they want as quickly as possible and get them to build that thing themselves. Otherwise it will always be your change. And the moment that you leave, it will go away. That's such great advice, Jim, and so eloquent the way that you put it. I can see that you've Thank you. you've you've had a, a life of hard knocks in this regard. I'm I'm sure <laughs> that you've learned dramatically from through your time. I have I have put myself in all sorts of harrowing situations. Yes, <laughs> the wisdom <laughs> of the age. I think that is brilliant advice. <laughs> so, mate, I want to you know I I can tell that you've learned and learned and learned throughout your career. Because where you, what you're communicating, what you're talking about now is such so wise. But what's something that you've learned recently that you didn't know before, Jim? Like what's been a recent learning for you? The thing that I found out recently that just was just really moving for me is, um, you know, for years I've been begging people, please collaborate or to, to, to software developers, please, please plan. You know, uh, no, user stories aren't planning. <laughs> they're, they're taking somebody else's plan and turning them into something vague. Uh, please plan. I just beg you, plan a little bit. And they're just like, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. The moment that we got into COVID, it, it, it only took a few months. Almost every team that we were working with started to demand that they were part of the planning process because they wanted to understand the why of the work because they, they now physically realized how disconnected they'd always been yeah. from the customer, from, the, from, the, from everything. And it has been awesome to do value stream maps where they're almost immediately moving back. You know, I want to be, I want to be involved in concept. I want to be involved in planning. I want to be involved in generating the requirements. And I want to be involved later on when we're actually doing the testing. That never happened before. And um, I don't know how we're going to be able to fake that in the future. 
<laughs> like racking my brain, like how can I generate this this response in the future? Because it has been beautiful. So what I learned was that when people are removed from what gives them comfort, they start to actually demand real transparency. They start to actually demand real collaboration and real interaction. And I've I have adored every minute of that. Yeah, I can I can imagine. I think too. I think it, the amount of change that was going on forced people to think about it. But also, I guess that advent of technology at that time that allows collaboration visually to be so much faster and slicker helped at the same time, didn't it? There's good that's come out of that whole COVID era. A lot of uh, pain. Some. Good. I mean, ha- having said that, Tony Ann and I wrote all of Personal Kanban on um, uh, uh, on teleconferences and in Google Docs. And we were an entire continent apart. And we did that in 2009, 2010. So we, um, it could have been done earlier, but learning that, learning that we could do it that fast. Yeah. Oh my God. I I never saw that coming. Yeah. No. And you look at (laughs) us, Jim, you know, you're, you're on one continent. I'm in another recording a podcast. It's it's um yeah it's created some good outcomes. Well, Jim, yeah, th- thank you so much, mate, for all the work you've done and the learning you've had and the wisdom you're now sharing and what you'll continue to do going forward to help us create a better future, mate. Really appreciate. It. Thanks for the time and the knowledge. Thank you for having me, Brad. Cheers, Jim. Bye for now. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help others gain insights and create a better future. There were two key takeaways for me from this episode. Firstly, the power of visualization. Visualizing work, communication, and culture where work is done creates the ability for individuals and team members to see the great things that are going on and the few challenges they face. Really understand those challenges and then improve and keep moving forward. Jim's discussions about the part leaders can play with this, you know, leaders going to where the work is done to see the obeyer, see that visualization of all the good things, progress, and a few challenges, really helps the leader take a different approach. You know, he or she is not just hearing all the problems, they can see the great things and the challenges, then truly learn and then take that learning to help the culture of that team and also performance going forward. It's an amazing approach. The second key takeaway for me was a discussion on starting the approach of change and you know trying to create a culture of improvement innovation by understanding the individuals and the team you're looking to help. Understand their world, their great work, but also the challenges they're facing. Focus the change efforts on helping them improve in the areas that they want to improve and the knowledge that they need to do that. As a change agent, I think this really will enable greater success with the changes that we make over just trying to deploy a whole cookie cut type of approach. Change that is too dramatic, too big, that people can't connect to has a big chance of failure. Our natural instincts in those situations are to rub it, to say, look, just go away, I'm too busy, just leave me with what I've already got. You know, this collaborative approach that Jim mentioned provides for a much greater chance of success and greater, faster results right out of the gate. Thanks again for your time and knowledge, Jim. Thanks for helping us create a better future. Bye for now.